Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, May 18th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we talk with Mississippi Today reporter Anna Wolf about her new series, The Back Channel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Families of Mississippi law enforcement officers who died in the line of duty gathered to honor their loved ones at an annual ceremony. MPB's Kobe Vance reports. Families and fellow officers are placing roses on a plaque to honor those who died in state law enforcement. I'm here to call out the names of our fallen heroes. Adrian Cole. Across all divisions of state law enforcement, a total of 37 officers have died in the line of duty since the 1940s. Among the crowd of attendees is Vicki McGee of Foxworth, widow of Officer Joey McGee, who died during his service with the Department of Transportation's Law Enforcement Division 15 years ago. She and her three children are speaking with other families who've lost loved ones. It means a lot. You got somebody that, you know, has been through similar things that you have, like this one lady that was sitting beside me with the two young children. And, you know, my kids were just a year and a half, five and nine years old when their dad was killed. I know what it's a struggle as a young mother with young kids to go through losing your partner or your spouse. The ceremony also serves as a sobering reminder to other officers about the risks they take with a career in law enforcement, says Public Safety Commissioner Sean Tindall. He says one way the state could better prepare for dangerous situations is through de-escalation training and specialized officers. We're starting to have a greater focus on mental health and mental health officers. We ask our law enforcement officers to not only uh, carry the, the gun and the badge and, and protect the community and do so many things, we also want them to be social workers and de-escalate domestic situations, mental health visits and other things. And It's asking too much of them. Mississippi has also expanded death benefit requirements to include first responders who died due to the coronavirus. Cubby Vance, MPB News. Coming up, we talk with Mississippi Today reporter Anna Wolf about her new series, The Back Channel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Thanks. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi Today investigative reporter Anna Wolf's newest series is called The Back Channel. It explores former Mississippi Governor Phil Bryant's involvement in a sprawling welfare scandal that allegedly resulted in the theft of millions of dollars in federal money intended for the state's poorest residents. Wolf speaks with Mississippi Edition producer Rob Lane. Back in 2020 is when the story kind of broke wide open. Six people were arrested by the state auditor's office, which originally investigated the case. Those six people were the former director of the Department of Human Services, the Welfare Department, John Davis, and um, a, a few people from a nonprofit called Mississippi Community Education Center that was receiving really an unprecedented uh number of dollars, just this kind of open cash flow from the Department of Human Services that was the nonprofit was supposed to be offering services to people living in poverty, such as workforce development and parenting classes, um, fatherhood initiatives, that kind of thing. And uh, instead, we saw that money was just kind of flowing out of the door of this nonprofit to $5 million to a volleyball stadium at University of Southern Mississippi and to these famous athletes to do kind of like mentoring and professional development courses and um, a number of other things that um, most people would not consider programs to help people living in poverty. And so those people were arrested in 2020. And since then, we've kind of learned there's been a kind of a trickle of, of information uh, where we've learned more and more about how these funds were spent and the structures, you know, in place at the Department of Human Services that allowed for this misspending to occur. And um, most recently, we've obtained n- new information, um, mostly through written communications that shows just how big of a role the former governor, Phil Bryant, played in what happened at the Department of Human Services, the way that his welfare director was really would, would bend to his wishes and the way that he sort of uh, had a hand in selecting who would get public funds um, during this time where this scandal occurred. And we're talking about a total of $77 million that was potentially misspent here. Let's go a little bit more in depth there. What did you find um, and uh, how would you describe sort of the level of the governor's involvement relative to those like the welfare director, John Davis, who is going to have his life, already has had his life and will continue to have his life fundamentally changed by this scandal? Right. So I think the best example to give, just because it is such a big part of the criminal charges that have been brought against these defendants, is uh, there was a payment made out from the nonprofit to a company called Prevacus, which was a pharmaceutical startup company that was trying to develop a drug to prevent the, the damage, um, brain damage from concussions. And so Nancy knew is the nonprofit director and, and in her criminal indictment, you know, she's expected to spend time in prison, um, has already pled guilty, um, part of what she's accused of doing is uh, funneling welfare dollars to this pharmaceutical firm, you know, come to find out it was really Brett Favre, the former NFL quarterback who was behind, you know, securing those funds and, and, and getting those funds diverted in that way to that, that company. But even a layer behind that, it was uh, Phil Bryant that Brett Favre was meeting with prior to this deal getting made. And um, not only that, but in text messages that we found, Brett Favre was soliciting help from the governor 
in this venture, this pharmaceutical venture, and he offered the governor stock in the company in exchange for his help. And this was, you know, just weeks before they started receiving welfare funds. Um, throughout the last year of Phil Bryant's uh, time in office, he helped the company in a number of ways, getting them connected with the FDA, that kind of thing. And in the last month of his um, time in office, he uh, agreed by text to accept stock in this company. And he said he couldn't do it until the day after he left office. And two days after he left office, sure enough, he communicated with the owner of this company and uh, agreed, you know, affirmatively to, to accepting a company package for all his help. Of course, the arrests happened shortly after that and sort of derailed that arrangement. But that's the, at this point, the most astonishing thing that we can, you know, uh, show in our reporting about Phil Bryant's involvement in the misspending of this welfare money. And again, like the $2 million that Prevacus received wasn't, quote unquote, misspent money or money that was misspent you know, outside of the regulations of this program, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, it was money that was stolen from the state and diverted to this program. Come to find out, you know, the governor was was actually briefed and informed that that company was receiving public funds. And in reporting this piece, you interviewed the former governor extensively for about three hours. I did, yeah. And he denies having any intention to actually receive that right. stock from the company that can you sort of explore that ambiguity a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, it was really interesting because, you know, when we first started getting talking, um, he denied ever accepting the stock or, or ever really having the intention to. But everything he described in, you know, his last days in office and, and even in the first, you know, weeks out of office was that, you know, it was... It was his idea to end the relationship with this company, and he never intended to take the the money and um, that he just kind of he had a conversation with them after he left office and just decided this is not the right thing. I don't want to do this. But the text messages contradict that storyline. The text messages show that he was talking with this company, arranging to meet with them, setting uh, meeting details, you know, time and place to you know, entering a business deal with this company. And it wasn't until the arrests happened that he ended that relationship. So there's kind of a contradiction there. But then the other sort of astonishing explanation that he gave was that when Brett Favre and the owner of this company was texting him in the earlier days when they had started receiving welfare funds, that they were working with Nancy New, working with John Davis, and that they had received public funding from the state of Mississippi, Phil Bryant is saying that he didn't read his text messages carefully enough in order to appreciate what they meant, that that company was actually receiving public funds. So he denies knowing that this private company, in a deal completely shielded from public view, was receiving money from the state of Mississippi, even though he was explicitly told that in text messages and responded affirmatively with things like, you know, great job, we'll get this done. He says that he just shot off, you know, canned responses and didn't read carefully enough to to know that that, that was actually occurring. And this all comes within the context of he had met with Favre and other folks at Prevacus before any of this had happened? Exactly. Right. Okay. They had kind of reached out to Phil Bryant as an initial entryway into, you know, how can we partner 
the state of Mississippi with Prevacus. And in their very initial conversations in late 2018, Brett Favre and the owner of this company sort of were, were discussing how can we bring the governor on board so that he can help us you know, we should offer him stock. We, sh- you know, I don't know if it's illegal or not, but we should, you know, give him some shares in the company. So all of that intention is very well displayed by those communications. More from Anna Wolf after the break. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. We're talking with Mississippi Today reporter Anna Wolf about her new series, The Back Channel. Here's Mississippi Edition producer Rob Lane. I want to touch on something that you kind of alluded to, which is the fact that when you look at all of this documentation that you've put together, it is so clear that former Governor Bryant was absolutely starstruck by Brett Favre and sort of one rung lower down the ladder, John Davis was absolutely starstruck by the governor. I'm curious in in working through these thousands and thousands of messages, if there are any takeaways you have about how this kind of cult of celebrity perpetuated all of this incredibly poor judgment. That's the kind of thing that still puzzles me, but it's certainly just what you described. Um, I think you had some people who were given almost free reign, free, you know, control over the spending of millions and millions of, of federal um, anti-poverty dollars in a state that already doesn't prioritize what the needs of the poor are. And and then you have celebrities like Brett Favre coming in and making these people who have this little bit of power feel more important. And they were susceptible to that for, for whatever reason. And um, beyond the, the celebrities... It was important for John Davis to feel close to Phil Bryant. Phil Bryant gave him his job and could, you know, potentially help him in his um, career for the rest of his life. So I think you see that influence coming from from all angles. You've reported on Mississippi for years. You were at the Clarion Ledger before you were at Mississippi Today. Is this in some ways a microcosm of deeply ingrained systemic problems within Mississippi state government, this system of favors and back channels and handshake agreements that turn into transfers of millions of dollars? Absolutely. Take just just from my personal experience, the culture of secrecy within these state agencies. You, you, t- you talk about like cultish, you know, behavior. It's not just that there are some people, you know, at the top who are, you know, having parties and, you know, living lavishly, it's, it trickles down throughout the agency that there is this idea that, you know, you have a a job from the state and you feel like you can't lose it. And so you get along to, you go along to get along. Um, And, you know, the fact that the fund that was targeted in this scheme was a federal fund intended to serve the poor is no coincidence. This is a pot of money that, doesn't have any advocates, not no no uh, very strong advocates surrounding it, 
and no one really paying attention. And the federal government's not paying attention either. So that just goes to show, like, maybe it's not just a Mississippi problem, but, you know, no one else from the from the federal side was really making sure that the state was using these dollars to the best of their ability to serve the people that they were intended to serve. I want to pivot a little bit. You mentioned the fact that you felt in, in working through these documents that you could see the clear influence of John Davis being indebted to the governor because the governor had given him a job. And I want to talk about a piece you published a little bit more recently about state auditor Shad White sort of examining the scope and sort of the appropriateness of his role in all this. Yeah, His is a name that hasn't come up yet so far in our conversation very much. Can you tell us a little bit more about how Shad White comes into the story? So Shad White was the, the auditor's office was the original investigating agency. And, you know, it's kind of fun to think back on how this all came to be because, you know, these were conversations that he and I were having much before the arrests and even before the investigation began in mid-2019. So what happened was a employee of the Department of Human Services, at least this is the story that's been told so far from, you know, several parties, but an employee of the Department of Human Services went to the governor to describe a instance of suspected fraud by John Davis, the head of the agency. Phil Bryant took that information to Shad White, whose office started investigating that very small instance of fraud, which was essentially John Davis's um, contract with a professional wrestler, Brett DiBiase, who was also uh, arrested and has since pled guilty within this scheme. And it, it amounted to $48,000 that they were talking about. Now, over the course of their investigation, you know, they, they were pulling that thread and things began to unravel and, and that's how they got to Nancy and Prevacus. But, um, but initially Phil Bryant was the one that took the information to Shad White. And when the arrests happened in early 2020, Shad made a point to call Phil Bryant, the whistleblower, which that term comes with, a you know, a lot of perception and really the, I mean, the term itself is, has a layer of protection inherent within it. And um, so you, that was kind of the first political uh, moment, you know, the indication that this might turn political. But but before that, typically if, you know, federal dollars are alleged to have been misspent, that information goes to the feds. And the FBI has so much of a greater capability to investigate these larger schemes and conspiracies. So... Shad did not turn over the information to the FBI before he made the arrests. And, um, you know, they didn't even know that arrests were coming down until basically until they happened and until the, the news media knew about them. And so that that's unusual. And um, so Shad has been scrutinized for that decision. He hasn't taken the scrutiny very well. And that sort of just raises more questions. Let's talk about that. Um, recently, he, he disputed in, uh, in a series of tweets your description of what he did and didn't do with the information when he had it. He wrote on Twitter, read some garbage reporting this morning, I hope you're flattered, Anna, saying I should not have done anything in the welfare scandal and just handed the case over to another law enforcement agency to ensure Phil Bryant was investigated. 
guess what? I did hand it over to another law enforcement agency after our initial mm-hmm. arrests. I gave the FBI access to everything we have mm-hmm. over two years ago. Uh, they have even worked from my office on the case. Between all of us, this case will be fully investigated, period. I I think he's free to react however he wants. The story was about uh, three former auditors and how they might handle the situation if they were in his shoes, given the close relationship that Shad White had with Phil Bryant. You're talking about a state auditor that was appointed by the former governor, not just that, but served as his campaign manager prior to that. I mean, they were they were hand in hand, you know, in, within the Republican Party and him having that job and the trajectory of Shad's career, you know, was heavily influenced by the the former governor. But um, I mean, I'm glad you brought it up just because, you know, I think readers can take what they want from what he had to say in response to the story. But I think it speaks to um, a larger issue, too. And I would just say, like, the way that I react when people question me and how I do my job, which does happen, when people come to me with questions, the first thing I do is listen. And... I try to see where someone's coming from and I explain what I do and my thought process when I'm doing my job and, um, you know, acknowledge where I may have shortcomings and try to keep those things in mind in the future and thank them for helping me address my blind spots. You know, what I don't do is, is attack others and name call and belittle the work that, that others do. It's just not the attack that I take. Moving forward looking at this incident as something that in a lot of respects will continue to affect Mississippians, especially poor Mississippians for years to come, because this is money that, that is likely never going to turn back up again. That was intended for people who never got it. What lessons can state government, government officials learn? And most especially how should the current governor Tate Reeves and future governors think about their role differently in the wake of this incident? Yeah, I think a lot of the response to this scheme and this scandal have been to try to target the instance of fraud and and try to prevent fraud from occurring in the future, which is which is great and we need it. Um there are lots of things that, you know, we need to do in that realm and as far as, you know, audits being stronger and agencies being actually required to uh, make the changes that they say they're going to make in response to audit findings. But I think the larger issue here that maybe isn't being addressed is that, and I keep making this point, but you know, it doesn't matter to the person living in poverty if the funding that they were supposed to have received and didn't, if it went to line someone's pockets, i.e. like was actually embezzled to benefit someone personally, which is clearly illegal, or if it just went to a series of pet projects and programs that are not evidence-based and have no proof of actually assisting anyone out of poverty. One of those instances is criminal. The other one is not. It's perfectly legal and probably will continue for the existence of this program. And whether the, whether those two things happen, it makes no difference to the person who is missing out on opportunities and it, you know continues to cycle through this cycle of poverty because they didn't receive help from from the funding. So, you know, I think that we'll see that this money will continue to be used on things that 
have no outcomes for people living in poverty as long as the government is turning its back to to these programs and sticking its head in the sand um, on whether or not government is actually operating effectively. Anna Wolf is an investigative reporter at Mississippi Today. You can read her newest series, The Back Channel, in full at mississippitoday.org. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's Fix It 101. Then at 10, it's Everyday Tech. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Enjoy your day. It's a warm one.